0: Alex, say hello to everybody. (laughs) Well, if you need a Bible, there's a few on the back table. Otherwise, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As we continue through this gospel, I want to ask ourselves a question throughout all the book of Matthew. And the question I want to ask is, is Jesus preaching the gospel? I don't think it's a question we automatically think, huh? Well, that doesn't seem right to ask that question. But if Jesus is indeed preaching the gospel, I want to look at how do we preach the gospel. We've talked at the beginning what the gospel means, that the gospel is the message of Jesus, who he is, who He was to the Jewish people, the fulfilled Messiah, who He is to us as a Savior and all that He has done for us. But did Jesus preach the gospel? And as we begin, this is probably one of the more popular passages in all of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is beginning to present the kingdom of heaven, this good news, how does it look to us? And how should we then take this message that Jesus gave and be able to give it to others as well? One of the things that always intrigued me as Jesus would share is I would think he shares so different than we do. And of course you think, well, it's Jesus he's supposed to but we're supposed to be like him. And I, I never see Jesus give an altar call. He just never does. And, and so many times he just leaves things out there, making you wonder, why didn't you close the deal, Jesus? Why didn't you, you know, follow through and give them a little bit more insight? Yeah, you talked to your disciples and gave them a little bit more understanding, but why were you so vague, it seems, at times? Why did you leave people wondering and questioning. And of course they followed him and as they followed him they'd gain more and more understanding and through the things that he did actually got to see the message of who the Christ is, who God is, the heart of God through him personally. And and what Jesus begins to do here in Matthew chapter 5 is he shows us how to rethink. Rethink About ourselves, rethink about the world around us, to, to recalibrate our lives and and to kind of reset our compass to, to true north and, and what God wants for us. To, to think about what we listen to, to rethink what we trust in. What is the story of your and my life telling? Because he challenges us in these things, and he is redefining life itself. And as we read from verses 1 through 12, we'll kind of get a little idea of what this looks like. In verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He saw the crowds and he went up on a mountainside. And this is very uh, figurative and similar to Moses when he went up on the mountainside and received the law of God. Jesus is now introducing uh, introducing us to the new law in a sense of his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And he goes up on this mountainside to do so. It says in verse one that his disciples came to him. And so we know that they were around him, but we see in chapter seven, that he spoke these things, and when he's through speaking, it says that the crowds were amazed. So even though the disciples were close, the crowds were also within an earshot, and they were listening to him as well. And that's one of the reasons he was up on the mount, mountainside. He was speaking to the multitudes, and not just the disciples. This is also the first time that we really start to see the word disciple being used in a regular pattern as a... a connecting them to the designation of a follower of Christ. And the word disciple means a learner. And so here we start to see the disciples, those who are closest to him, those who are followers of him, those who are learners. And I just love that word. Disciple means a learner. Because that is something that continues throughout our life. We are always learning. We are always gaining more insight and understanding to who Jesus is and what's taking place. And and as he gets to speaking to this crowd, who are these multitudes? Who is this crowd of people? What are they made up of? Because they're going to comprise the majority of the people that he speaks constantly to. And the crowd are people who've traveled distances to see and hear him. Usually coming from small villages, you know, they, they travel over a period of days just to get to this place. And so they comprise a lot of small villages that gather together. It's really, I mean, Nazareth itself had about 100 people, they think, in it at that time. And a synagogue or a group of people that would gather together would accompany maybe 20 people they would be able to gather. 20 men would comprise a synagogue. And so you had a lot of small groups that would gather together, and that's why they would meet outdoors many times. They're not going to have a whole building just for 20 people. They might meet outside somewhere. And again, most of the time it was men, but the men and women that comprised this group, most of them were illiterate. And Jesus being a rabbi from a small town was highly unusual. So he is a curious guy coming from a small village Everyone's curious about him. We know that he had already healed the sick and so word usually goes out pretty quick when you do something like that. And so a lot of people were now coming around to hear him, but they were these unlearned people, common folk, from a number of villages who have to walk for days to come and listen. And so they're desiring to hear these things. And this list that Jesus puts out here is just really... A list of things that we usually run away from. They're they're not a list of things that we run towards. And about a year ago, actually in June uh, last year, we went through the Beatitudes. We called it the uh, Better Life. And we went through each Sunday, we took one of the Beatitudes. I think Michael last year sometime shared on one of them as well. So it's, again, a popular and powerful passage And if you want to get a little more in depth, I'm going to try and cover them all. And and it's so much in here. But this is not something that people look forward to. No one wants to be poor. No one wants to mourn. No one wants to be hungry for something meek or persecuted. Those aren't things we desire. You don't wake up in the morning and say, man, I'm hoping I can mourn today. And so here's this group of people following Jesus and he starts presenting to them these items that they are naturally trying to stay away from. And he starts off with the idea of blessed. And no doubt it has a remnant of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the steps of the wicked. And so they have this understanding of the psalm and that word and how it's used most commonly. And the word would mean happy or so happy as kind of a literal translation, but we know that doesn't quite capture the whole of what this meaning is. The idea of blessed is favorable. I love Rick McKinley says, you know, it's like Jesus presents this list, and he says if you fall into this category, it's almost like he's saying congratulations. I kind of like that. Congratulations if you're poor in spirit. And you're thinking, what? Now, Luke's gospel, when he talks about poor in spirit, it just says poor. It doesn't include in spirit, but it's both a a literal poverty. It's to be in need. And so here in Matthew's gospel, it gets a little bit more focused where it talks about in spirit. Luke's gospel talks about just poor, but it talks about just having this need. Goodspeed renders this translation, those who feel poor their spiritual need. You ever felt hungry? You know, just kind of, you have this feeling. It just grabs you. Those who feel their spiritual need. It's something that presses on you. And so as Jesus starts off, he talks about those who are in this condition of need. And you see, we try and strive not to feel poor in spirit. We want to feel better about ourselves. I want to feel that I'm okay. I don't want to feel deprived or, or, or lacking. I, I want to feel that I'm okay. And so to, to feel okay, I'll, I'll buy self-help books, go to any Christian bookstore, they'll tell you how not to feel poor in spirit just about. We'll, we'll medicate, we'll meditate, we'll do whatever we can so that we can get rid of this haunting feeling of inadequacy. But we see here that Jesus says, when you have that inadequacy, when that feeling of just not sufficient, not good enough is there, congratulations. And you're thinking, what? And he says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. And we've talked about what the kingdom of heaven was, how we, it's not just something that's in the future, it's something that's... Here at work now, it's something that's in our hearts. It's something in the words that we proclaim. The kingdom of heaven is speaking about all that He, Jesus, is, all that He possesses, and all that His reign means. That's yours. And so we see that the first step to to having what God wants for us is a recognition of the truth about ourselves, an understanding I don't have what it takes. And I want you to see how this strikes against everything that the world is saying we are to have. You're supposed to have it all together. You're supposed to be a self-made person. And Jesus says, if you are poor, bankrupt in spirit, recognize that you have nothing, you are in such need in this area of your life, congratulations. All of heaven belongs to you. Now imagine the impact that has on all these people who are, for the most part, poor, illiterate. What? I I thought the kingdom of heaven belonged to those who had affluence. I thought the kingdom of heaven belonged to those who had it all together. And Jesus says, no, it belongs to you who recognize your need. And so already it's contrary to culture, it's contrary to their religious beliefs, it's contrary to everything that they've heard and it's still contrary today. He goes on in verse 4 and he said, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted." Now, some translate this as, or try and translate this as blessed are those who are are mourning for their sins. In other words, if you're sorry for your sin, then God's going to comfort you by forgiving you of their sin of your sin. Through Christ, But I think this is more literal. It doesn't really say for your sin. It just says, blessed are those who mourn. Just like Luke says, blessed are the poor. What does he mean? And this is where that word can't really be translated as happy because it just, blessed are those who are happy, you know, who mourn. It's like, happy are those who are sad. It doesn't quite flow. But the idea of mourning is something that I think we again lose touch of. In Psalm thirty four eighteen it says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Something happens in our sorrow. Something happens to us, and you you sense it whenever you're at a, a memorial service for someone who's passed away, or you're dealing with someone who is suffering. Intensely, someone who has lost someone dear to them and they're mourning. There, there's something that takes place to them. They, they are in touch with life in a whole different realm than usually we we live. There is many times more dependency on God because of the condition. You find yourself on your knees. You find yourself just crying out to God and depth that you don't usually deal with because of the condition. And something takes place when we're mourning that doesn't happen at other times. I believe that it connects us to our humanity and I believe it connects us to God in ways that we don't do any other time. And to mourn, there has to be two things for mourning to take place. There has to be loss and there has to be love. If you've never lost anything that you've loved, then it's really only a matter of time because it will happen. You will lose someone or something that you love. And if you have never loved anything, then your life is really a tragedy because you no longer are moved to the things that really matter. And so to be moved to this level, it risks sorrow. Whenever you have to love, there is the possibility of sorrow. And so, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus says, you mourn, congratulations. And this mourning is not only one of the deepest human emotions, but I think it's almost divine. It's God-given. Jesus was prophesied in Isaiah as a man of sorrows. He, he had this mourning about him because he cared. He looked over Jerusalem and he wept as he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And then he talked about their destruction. And so Jesus had this mourning about him that shows, again, the heart of God. And the promise of comfort takes place both presently And in the future. And during that time, you are most likely, again, humbled, dependent, and reflecting what a child of God is supposed to reflect in those times of mourning more than any other time. And so here is something that we usually just want. I want to get out of mourning. I want to be clear of this. And Jesus says in the midst of it, congratulations. It's something that is powerful and that is meant to be powerfully used within our lives. I shared when I went through this passage, a passage in Revelation 21 about John being on the island of Patmos. In in Revelation 21 verses 1 through 5, you see a curious passage. And the book of Revelation is just so much higher than my pay grade. I mean, it's just one of these books I just, like, yeah, I don't know. You know, and every... Well, I won't go there, but anyway, in chapter 21, this is one of those areas where you start to read and you kind of grab hold of most of it, but there are some passages that are a little unusual. In verse 1 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband." And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these things down, for the words are trustworthy and true. And so here is a popular passage where God is going to wipe away every tear. He's going to clear the morning so that it will no longer be there. But there's this one verse that is real interesting in verse 1 when he says, and there was no longer any sea. What's with the sea? What's wrong with the sea? I like the ocean. I like lakes, I like rivers, I like all kinds of water. And I've heard so many interpretations to this. A lot of people go through and they find all the things that are, are wrong with the, the sea, where there's evil things that come out of the sea, and so sea is supposed to represent this evil thing. But then there's a lot of places where it was good. God created the seas and they were good originally. And, and I heard this understanding of it, of John being on the island of Patmos being separated from everyone that he loves. And around him was nothing but the sea. Everywhere he looked, there was just the sea that kept him from the people he loved, that kept him from his family, his friends. And as he's reading these things and he's saying, you know, the old things are just gone away with, there's no more mourning, and he says, there's no more sea. There is no more sea that separates us from those he loves. And it's just gone. What's your scene? What's, what's your mourning? What are the things that are vexing your soul? And Jesus says, congratulations. You're going to be comforted. I'm going to change that. And I'm with you now through that. Probably closer than most other times in your life. And so here when we would try and run away from mourning, think of it as something that we need to rid ourselves with, Jesus says we're blessed. And once again, it's just so contrary. And you again think of all the people that are listening to him when they say, you're blessed if you're mourning. And and I know that we go through hard times. We're in financial difficult times. I mean, it's like we live from paycheck to paycheck and many of us are living by faith, you know, trying to make ends meet and man, it just seems so vexing. But I I guarantee you this, all of us here are living much better than the majority of the people that were living at that time. Just, we're eating a lot more than they ate they were wondering about food. They were wondering about you know, clothing, shelter. Those, those were some of their important things. They had multiple families living in single homes with animals living there as well. I mean, you just put yourself there. No air conditioning in the Mideast. Think about it. And so Jesus is saying, you're going through a hard time, you're mourning. Congratulations. Verse 5, he goes on and he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Again, here's a word that we don't usually use. It's not something that we think about. You know, meek just is is not what we think of. We kind of think meek and weak. We're like dyslexic in a weird sort of way. We just turn the M to W or something, you know. It's like meek is kind of weak, you know. And and our natural idea is, no, the strong, the conquerors, the, the affluent, the powerful, they're the ones who inherit the earth. That's my experience, they're the ones who, who get the raises. They're the ones who, who get drafted first and get picked you know, on, on the softball team. They're the ones who, who inherit the things. But meek is not weak. And the idea of meekness is the idea of under control. You're, you're not combative. You're not assertive. A picture that is used many times for meek is a horse. Here's a strong creature, but it's under control just by having that bridle or brittle or whatever it's called in its mouth. I'm not a horse kind of guy. This strong animal is just controlled by the reins and that bit in its mouth. That's the idea of meekness, power under control. And Jesus is the ultimate example of, of meekness. He is a person who had all power yet submitted himself unto death perfect example of meekness. And you see, this, this isn't about lacking confidence, power, or strength, or it's not inviting us to be cowards or uninvolved, but actually it's asking us to take our strengths and put them under God's authority. So whatever strengths you have, allow them to be governed by God. That's meekness. Again, that's the picture of Jesus. He's a perfect example. This isn't the person who who steps on others to get the promotion. This is the person who cares about others and then loses the promotion. Have you ever felt like, man, I just never get a break? I just don't get the break. You know, it always seems like someone else gets the good deal and I'm always the person who gets left behind. I am the one who gets forgotten. Oh, we ran out and you're the one who, you know, lost out. And you know, nice guys finish last kind of a thing. I, I just can't seem to get the break. And what Jesus is saying, you know, here the person who who is not asserting yourself but is surrendering your abilities to the work of God and therefore you're you're giving yourself to others and it seems like you're getting missed. It seems like you're getting stepped on. It seems like you're getting passed by. One day, Jesus says, all those people who gathered all those things are going to just hand them to you and say they belong to you. We've collected them all these years but we've collected them for the meek. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those who strive will end up handing those things over to you. And again, how we see what this looks like. In other words, inheriting the earth means it's something that is yours by by birth. An inheritance belongs to someone who is connected to that in birth. And Jesus is saying, if you are meek, if you're like me, this is part of your birthright. And I'll make sure you get it. And so, you know, those movies or whatever where they're giving the will out, you know, and it's like, okay, and, you know, here's, you know, the, the trophy wife, you know, you get, you know, the curling iron, what, from the millionaire, you know, and who gets the, the inheritance oh, it was the one, you know, person who really cared for them. You get the millions because you were his real friend. And Jesus is saying, you're going to inherit all that I have. It's your inheritance, but meekness is part of it. And so again, congratulations. Verse 6, he goes on and he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, to be hungry means you're lacking, you're empty of something. Okay? And again, this strikes against everything we think. We think blessed are the righteous because they're so good. But he's not saying that. He says, blessed are those who are hungry to be righteous and aren't. And again, think of how this slaps the face of religion. The religious, oh, man those who are who are upright those who just have it all together they're the blessed ones they're the ones who god smiles upon and jesus is saying no the ones who are blessed are the ones who are hungry those who want to be it but aren't cuz you're not hungry for something if you're full i know i eat even when i'm full sometimes but i'm no longer hungry and let's face it, we don't know hunger like the people at this time really did. Whenever I'm hungry, man, I'm famished. I haven't eaten in forty minutes. You know, I mean I'm just like I don't know how I'm gonna make it. You know, I'm driving somewhere and I feel dizzy, you know, I'm gonna have to pull over, get an in and out before dinner, you know. So I mean we really don't know what it's like to be hungry. And so Jesus' words, I think, are minimized to us. This is not just some casual curiosity in God or interest in religion. Blessed are those who who would like to know more, who would like to snack on God. This is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of necessity. Blessed are those who are really hungry for this righteousness that God gives but don't have it themselves. You see, and the idea of being filled or, or satisfied It's actually an old, uh, in our English it would translate to grass. It has the picture of cattle grazing and being satisfied, having a field and them having enough to eat. And so if you're hungry for righteousness, Jesus says, you'll be filled, you'll be satisfied. It reminds uh, reminds me of Matthew 7, 7, the ask, the seek, the knock, and God will... Open God will answer, you will find. It has to do with desiring these things that God has for us. You know, have you ever had a, just a great meal and you've eaten it and you're full and you're just content? Does that mean you will never be hungry again? No, you, you long to eat again. I can't wait till tomorrow when I can have the leftovers. You still have this hunger being satisfied is, is not arriving, it is eating the right things over and over and over again. And now we see Jesus' words where I am the bread of life, I am the water of life, or I'm the bread from heaven, the bread of life, water of life. It starts to take on this, he's the one who satisfies the hunger, he's the one who satisfies the thirst that we have over and over and over again. And so these first four that he talks about really have to do with the things that we are. I know that a lot of people say, well, the Beatitudes, you just have to be these things. But I don't know how you can actually be some of these things. I don't know how you can be mournful. You don't manufacture that. You know, it's kind of a condition of life, a place that you find yourself in. And I think these four things are really places that... All of us should find ourselves in if we're really seeking after God. We, we don't have this place where, no, I'm right, I'm good with God. Me and God, psh, no problem. You know, if he grades on a curve, yeah, I'm up there. Compared to who, you know. <laughs> no, I, I don't need to be any more righteous. I, I'm pretty good like it is. I've got it together. I'm not poor. I've got all I need. And you see that these are really a condition of our heart and a position of our heart in so many areas and so many things. Um, And so these first four have to deal kind of with this idea of where we are. The next four verses change from where we are to something that we're kind of responsible for, something that we need to put into practice. Um, You know, remember here that the expected Messiah was supposed to remove Roman oppression, he, he was supposed to change things and how they were, take away the reign of the Caesars and, and those who were lording over them, and what they wanted to hear now was just how he was going to raise them up, and, and listen to what he says now as he goes on in verse 7, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, You see, they didn't want to hear this. They wanted to hear, you know, how vengeance was mine, says the Lord, and I'm going to pass this vengeance now over to you. But now here Jesus comes and says, I know you're oppressed. I know you're being controlled. I know you're being taxed beyond your means. I know you're impoverished. I know you're mourning. I know you're hungry and thirsty for these things. And now I'm asking you to be merciful so that you will obtain mercy. And this idea of having to, to give, you know, to receive, I mean, Jesus later on in Matthew six fourteen, he's going to say, unless you forgive men their trespasses, God's not going to forgive you for yours. He, he tells us that if you judge, you'll be judged in Matthew chapter 7. And here he's saying that the unmerciful aren't going to receive mercy. It kind of comes to a culmination in Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18, where he talks about how this, this landowner forgave him such a great debt, and then he went to his friend and wouldn't forgive him a small debt. And he was cast into prison because he was not merciful and said, the same way it's going to be with you if you don't show mercy. And so there's this real connection of how we live that is responsible for what happens to us. And God seems to be all hung up on how we deal with each other. we notice that? He seems to real care about that. And I wonder how it is that we've moved so far away from this connected responsibility of forgiveness, of judgment, of being merciful. Because the church is probably known as the most unforgiving, unmerciful group of people in the world. The most judgmental people in the world. And and I, I was just thinking, can you be a follower of Christ? A follower of Jesus? Can you be a Christian and not show mercy? You see, we, we think it Well, I, I, said a, I said a prayer. I answered an altar call. I, I made a decision. But you're not merciful. But you're judging. But you're not forgiving. Are you a follower of Jesus? What is the Gospel? Is it saying a prayer? Is it answering the altar call? Is that the gospel message? Or is it being merciful? See, now we're we're getting to what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to show mercy, even as Christ has shown mercy to us. Philippians tells us that. And so I think we, we have a skewed idea of what it means to be a Christian. Because seldom do I hear... You know, Christians are merciful. That's one of their characteristics. Christians are forgiving. Christians are not judgmental. That's part of their character. Can you be a follower of Jesus and not be those things? Or is the gospel, the good news, this message of who Jesus is wrapped up in these things? And it obviously is. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, what's interesting about this is we assume the pure in heart, when they die, they will see God. That's kind of where my mind tends to go. But I believe that This is something like the others can actually take place now. And Hebrews 11, verse 27, it says, By faith Moses left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. He saw him who is invisible. And, you know, it's possible that there are things that are beyond our ability to, to see. If you're colorblind, Many times it means you can't see certain definitions and there's different types of colorblind. There's colorblind where you can't distinguish pastel colors. You can see primary colors, okay, but the pastels become a wash. One of my boys are are colorblind in that way. He doesn't see the pastels and as soon as his brothers found out, they tried to tease him consistently. What color is this? What color is this? I don't know. Leave me alone. You know, he just wanted to know. And it's like... That's the first thing you want to know. Are you colorblind? What color is this? You know, It doesn't mean the color is not there. It's just they don't have the ability to see what is there. And could it be that this pure in heart has to do with the ability to actually see God who is here? To actually see the invisible. You see, Jesus is not saying if you do the right things, you will see God. If you do all the righteous things, then you'll get to see God. He's talking about pure in heart. It's a condition. Turn with me to Psalm 24, because I believe that what he had in mind was here found in the Psalms, in actually a couple Psalms. But Psalm 24, starting at verse 3, David writes, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Go to Psalm 27, verse 4. David again says, One thing I ask from the Lord this only do I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek Him in His temple. And you see, I think what God is looking for is a people who desires to see Him, a people who desire God in His place, to see the Lord reigning, to see the Lord and to see his works being accomplished, they have that desire. Just like Moses, who was looking for God, though he was invisible, he saw him because he was looking for the maker of the city that was built by God. He wasn't trying to find just his own city. He was looking for that city that God or Abraham built. Not Moses, sorry. Um, and so... This really has at the heart, those who are not given to idolatry are the ones who will see God. And and idolatry has to do with desiring the things that aren't the things that God desires. Loving the things that don't please your father. Desiring things that are displeasing. You see, that contaminates our heart. Pure in heart are those who are not given to idolatry, those who can ascend to the temple, those who have clean hands, and a pure heart, those who aren't polluted by idolatry. And so in 1 John 2.15 says that we're not to love the world or the things that are in this world, it's talking about not to be polluted. And you see, I believe that we have the ability to actually see God just like Abraham did just like David talks about. If our hearts desire Him, if we're not crowded with all the junk that pushes Him out, all the the things, the idols that will limit His work within our lives. And so, I think that's an amazing thing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I wonder what could we see that we're not seeing, because maybe our eye, our hearts are are just polluted and, and crowded with stuff that's dirtying us up, that is contaminating the purity of our hearts. What would we be able to see if that was all gone? Kind of an amazing thing to think about that we would actually be able to see God and how that takes place. What did he mean when Abraham saw him who's invisible? How do you see what's invisible? What eyes do you have to have to see that which is invisible? More than eyes, it's the heart. You have to have a pure heart, a heart that is yielded to God. Verse 9, he goes on, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. I love this one because this is the DNA that you belong to God's family as if you are a peacemaker. Now, it's interesting because he uses the word the sons of God here. And that was a term that was very difficult for the Hebrews to understand, in part because of all the idolatry. You had, you know, the Zeus and you had, you know, Hercules and you know Apollos and Odin and Thor and all these things. The Caesars were supposedly sons of God and they were looking to be God someday. And so the Hebrews were difficult with this language. They didn't like this idea. Sons of God. In fact, Jesus they accused him of blasphemy. He says, by what do you stone me? You know, what have I done wrong? And he said, because you, being a man, call yourself to be God because he said he was God's son. And I said, no, that's blasphemy. And we have a hard time with that too. You know, we, we like to say, you know, we're, you know, followers of Christ. You know, we're believers, you know, or children of God. But the idea that I'm a son of God, you know, or a child of God, sometimes that, it's, that's reserved for Jesus alone. We like to use language that puts us further from God, but Jesus is actually using language that pulls us in closer. It's almost like he's saying, you were created to be more like me than you even know. That you are to be like me, a son of God. And that's a crazy thing. Well, how... What is the DNA of a a son of God, a a daughter of God, a child of God? What does that look like? What is that supposed to to render? You know, I don't think we, we realize how important this idea of being a peacemaker is. A person who makes peace. This isn't someone who just keeps the peace. This is someone who brings peace into the situation. You know, Christians are, are kind of, we, we like the end of the world scenarios, the spectacular, the sensational. We, we like to focus on those things, but to be called a son or daughter of God, we need to learn how to be, have peace and make peace in the relationships around us. To make peace with our husbands or our wives. To make peace with our children. To make peace with our friends, with our neighbors. To make peace. And you see, to make peace, what you need to do is humble yourself. To make peace, what you need to do is care more about the betterment of the situation than about yourself. And it's not an easy thing to make peace. It requires energy. It requires determination. You have to be very diligent to make peace. If you've been in an argument, those of you who are married, you know, and and you're having conflict, how do you make peace? By proving that you're right? Does that make peace? Hasn't in my house. No, to make peace, you have to care more about getting the relationship in the right place than whether you are right or not. But we're so, no, I'm right. I'm going to prove myself right. And that's more important is being right than making peace. And so we, we want to hammer down. Nope, I, it's all about being right. It's all about being right. I can prove it's the truth. I was right. That's the truth. That's the truth. I'm committed to the truth. I was right. And you're not making any peace at all. You're not helping to produce peace. You're just trying to prove yourself right. And how important is this in our lives, in the relationships? And again, how do you make peace? This is all about relationships. This is all about how we interact with one another. Have you noticed this merciful being mercy? What's with each other? Peacemaker. You don't make peace with your dog. You don't make peace with a building, with your water heater. The idea of a peacemaker has to do with how we deal with each other, how we invest in each other. It's real important that we learn that this is part of the characteristics of a child, a son, or a daughter of God, is they are peacemakers. Are you making peace or are you causing friction? Can you be a child of God and not be a peacemaker? Challenges us. A little frightening. I don't know if I'm a peacemaker. That's the characteristics of a child of God. Oh, no. I don't think I'm that. We'll take cheer. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe that's a good place to start. As we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, that peace that we've been given through Jesus Christ, we are now obligated to give to others as well. Making peace should be our gift to the world around us, as it is God's gift to the world within us. God has given us peace within our hearts because of Jesus Christ. We need to give that peace to those who are outside of us and those who are around us. Okay. Verse 10. I'm going to finish them all. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, I believe, is connected to verse 10. It says, Blessed are you when people insult you Persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecuted because of righteousness. That's real important. This isn't a catch-all phrase for any problem we face. I'm being persecuted. Yeah, my boss at work, he's really upset with me. I'm just being persecuted. No, this is being persecuted because of righteousness. It's not being persecuted because your boss is grumpy and you haven't done anything wrong. You're not being persecuted for righteousness. Okay, this has to do with a specific thing you are being persecuted for. You can't use this for, you know, everything. Well, the church, we're being persecuted. Why? Because, you know, they're trying to, to put laws against, you know, the church sharing and spreading the gospel. Or they're trying to make laws so that family, you know, is defined this way. you know, if we use politics or power to further the cause of Christ, don't be surprised if power and politics are used against it. That's just what comes with that avenue. And so I think it's uh, misleading to say, oh, we're being persecuted if you're trying to present a political agenda and then they're trying to stop your political agenda. That's not persecution. That's just how politics works. That's just how power shows up. That's, that's not the kind of persecution that Jesus means. You see, this has to do with living your life in the right way, even though everything around you is wrong. It has to do with making choices that buck the system, but they're the right choices. It's trying to to stop those who are are being abused. Think of slavery when it was legal and those who were against slavery and who were being persecuted because they were trying to stop what was being done because that was wrong. They were were being persecuted for trying to do what is right. That kind of a thing. And, And you see, they're involving themselves for that. Now, it's interesting because... It starts off just with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And and it ends with blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's kind of this full circle that takes place. And the idea of hungering for righteousness and being persecuted for righteousness. This is kind of a culmination of what happens when you start living this life that is surrendered to God, that is pure in heart, that is merciful, that is hungering for righteousness, that is mourning, that is spiritually bankrupt, that you start recognizing yourself in these areas and you start living this way, you become a person who then lives for what is right. And you will be persecuted. You will have to deal with these things. You see, Jesus is saying, if you've signed up to follow me, then we're going to jump in the middle of unrighteousness and we're going to make a difference to represent my kingdom. And that's not going to go well with people. They're going to persecute you because you are wanting to oppose their greed, because you are wanting to oppose their injustice, because you are wanting to stop those things that are taking advantage of people. And you are going to voice up and say, I think that's wrong. I think this is right. And they're going to want to stop you. You see, this is really making a stand for the kingdom of God and being called on it because of what you're standing for. Now, he doesn't repeat himself until this last one. Again, he starts with poor in spirit, ends with persecuted, and the kingdom belongs to both. You see, the world is shaped by people who choose the extreme. The world is shaped by the people who choose the extreme, whether it's extreme good or extreme evil. See, the world is shaped by people like Adolf Hitler, Stalin, Osama bin Laden. They shape the world. It's not shaped by Joe Smith, who does nothing but goes to church. He doesn't shape the world. Mrs. Smith, she doesn't shape the world just going to church, sitting in her pew, singing her hymns. They don't shape the world. The world is shaped by people who make a difference for the good or for the bad. The, the world is shaped by people like Mother Teresa. The world is shaped by people like Brother Lawrence. The world is shaped by people who effectively bring change, but sometimes that change isn't welcomed. Remember when Paul and Barnabas went and they saved that woman who was demon-possessed, and they got all mad because she was her way of making money. And so they were persecuted because they brought salvation to this girl and that she was their means of making money. Sex trafficking in the United States. Billion dollar business. Taking place around us. You step to try and save some of those girls who are being used in that way and you're going to have conflict. Because you're costing someone money. You'll be persecuted for righteousness. Making the choice to step into those areas even though they're difficult, even though they're dangerous, even though they go against what is the norm. You see, those who stood up for Jesus said, I don't believe Caesar is God. I don't bow to him. I'm not going to continue in your idolatry I'm going to follow the true and living God. And most of them had to deal with persecution, had to deal with death. Why? Because they weren't going to just close their eyes to the things around them. They they stood up for what was right, and it cost them. We don't have to step up for too much. And so we don't step up for much of anything. And so... The idea of being persecuted for what is right, we need to recognize that it's those who are willing to to shake the world around them, make a difference in the lives of those around them, and that's what causes persecution. And so if you're not being persecuted, odds are it's because you're not changing those areas and making a difference. And again, we live such sheltered lives here in the United States that it's not uncommon. And Jesus ties this in with the same persecution happened to the prophets who were before you. Again, saying you're in good company. These things happen to you. These things are marking. Now, Jesus is just starting off. First sermon. And this is the beginning of it. Oh my goodness. Man, I would have loved to just been there, seen the faces of the Pharisees and all the people, thinking, what is this guy saying? Because this is just... So contrary to the status quo, this just slaps everything in the face. You're poor in spirit, congratulations. You're mourning, you're blessed. You're meek, good job. You're hungry and thirsty, you're not righteous, but you want to be, all right, you'll be filled. All these things that he starts just presenting to us. Show mercy, you'll get mercy. Pure in heart, you'll see God. Peacemaker, you look like your father. Don't be surprised. You do these things, persecution comes to your life because you look like those who've looked like God before you. And so these are, Jesus is starting words to the Sermon on the Mount and he's just getting started. Let's pray. Lord, as we close our time here tonight just meditating on your words, I am so just struck. I am convicted. I am challenged. I am frightened. I am enlightened by the things that you say. And I'm asking questions in my own heart, Lord. Where do I fit in? Am I a person who is really poor in spirit? Do do I hunger? Do I thirst for what's right? Am I merciful, God? Lord, is my heart pure? God, why, why can't I see you? Lord, why do I not have persecution? And Lord, I know each of us can, can be so much more than who we are right now. We We can do so much more, but Father, what you care about is the inmost being, the desires of our heart. Lord, if you can take hold of our desire, if we could recognize the idolatry of our lives and and deal with it and give you that that place, Lord, that you need to be if we truly desired you. Lord, I think we would move so much further from where we are to where we need to be. And so I pray you help us to get rid of those things that we need to, to see ourselves clearly, to ask ourselves the hard questions, Lord, and to see how we measure up to your words. God, are we living these things? Are they a part of our lives? Are, are we recognizing that we are blessed? Are, are we seeing ourselves as blessed when we have to deal with these things? Or are we just constantly running away from them, trying to, to make ourselves better in our own understanding, in the world's eyes, in the world's, status. Father, give us clarity to understand these things and help us to come away tonight with things that are going to be valuable and move us forward. Thank you for everyone here, Lord. I pray you would bless them in these words. Lord, if I've spoken anything that doesn't represent you clearly or correctly, Lord, might it just disappear from our thoughts. Lord, may you just take these things and knit them together to form, Father, just hearts that are wholly yours. Thank you again for our time together. Lord, bless, we pray, for your name's sake, Jesus.